Chapter 18 ends with them leaving, fleeing deeper into the wilderness because they find out that the king is now after them. By the way, the chapter ends, there's 450 souls now, more than double what we saw at the beginning. There seem to be so many souls back in Nephi that will do anything they can to return to Zarahemla. How they get there is the story of everything else that follows in these chapters, 19 through 24. I'll go much faster through these chapters. The establishment of a church under Alma's direction was so important that chapter 18 was deserving of some extra time. Chapter 19 begins, however, with the army of the king returning, tail between their legs, having been unsuccessful at finding Alma and his church. And as was usually the case with Noah, his forces were small. Remember earlier he sent out guards, but there wasn't a sufficient number. And there now begins to be a division among the remainder of his people. And that division in two turns into contention in three. Now Gideon, who will come to know better later on, being a strong man and an enemy to the king, he draws his sword, swears in his wrath to slay the king, and goes in pursuit of him. Verse 5, King Noah runs straight to his tower and flees up it. So ironic that this man runs himself into a corner where there is no means of escape. I think that is such a fitting metaphor for the kind of lifestyle King Noah has lived and chooses to continue living, trapped by his own sins and sinfulness. Gideon follows him up. Doesn't take much of a military genius to pursue that path. But when King Noah is on the top of the tower, he looks around and he sees that the army of the Lamanites is within the borders of the land. Notice, as he cries for help, the order of his concern. In verse 7, he says, Gideon, spare me. That's his first concern, and really his only one. But he then adds, the Lamanites are upon us and will destroy us. So it's not just me, it's you too, Gideon. And then expanding the circle of concern, verse 7 ends, and they will destroy my people. Now again, King Noah cared not at all for his people and definitely didn't care about Gideon either. It was himself that he was concerned for. So I think it's interesting to see those concentric circles. Me, us, and then our people. I'm not the only one to see that. Verse 8 now, the king was not so much concerned about his people as he was about his own life, but Gideon did spare him. He commands the people to flee then, Noah does. But notice this detail in verse 9, and he himself did go before them. It's one thing for a leader to lead his people in battle. King Benjamin would, Limhi would, Zenith would. Later we'll see Alma himself and Helaman do the same. It's another thing to lead your people in retreat. When you're fleeing from the enemy, instead of staying back to make sure everyone else flees, kind of you as the last person of defense, King Noah is the first to head out. It's not him standing between his enemies and his people. It's him making sure his people stands between himself and his enemies. Even that isn't far enough, though. Because in verse 10, as the Lamanites pursue and begin to overtake them, King Noah then commands his men, verse 11, to leave their wives and their children. They're just dead weight anyway. They're slowing us down. They're holding you back. Truly an example of every man for himself. Verse 12, there were many that would not leave them, which unfortunately suggests that some would. But those more valiant, 
less fearful, decided to stay and perish with them, whereas the rest left their wives and their children and fled. The next two verses show an interesting irony. These men stayed back to protect their wives and children. But as the Lamanites were about to fall upon them to slay them, what happens in 14? The Lamanites have compassion on them, for they were charmed with the beauty of their women. You see, these men who had stayed back to protect their wives and children sent their fair daughters to plead before the Lamanites for mercy. So in effect, these fathers went back to save their wives and children, but it was their wives and children who ended up saving them. We live in an interesting age of parental absenteeism, especially when it comes to missing fathers from the home. And sometimes it seems like those fathers are leaving wives and children behind because their race to get ahead, to protect or preserve or to prosper themselves, can somehow go more easily without the added weight or burden of family. What they don't realize is that if they stay to save their families, they will in effect be saved by that choice. Their families will end up saving them, no matter how much slower their journey seems to be going. A truce is reached between them. Limhi becomes the leader of these captive Nephites, which tells us something about Limhi's loyalties. He cared more about the family that he was creating than the family that created him. In verse 17, he was desirous that his father should not be destroyed, but he wasn't ignorant of his father's iniquities. He himself was a just man. In fact, Limhi becomes this fascinating character because he's not Noah, but he's not Alma either. He wasn't among this congregation at the waters of Mormon. He stayed back in the land of Nephi. He fled with everybody else. Was he torn for a moment as his father was flying forward and his family was starting to fall back? He made the right decision for the circumstance that he was in, but he didn't choose to go with Alma, nor did his people. And that is a huge difference that we need to grapple with in these next few chapters. Now in verse 18, Gideon sends men to go find Noah. He's the one that's been causing all these problems. He should have, he's probably kicking himself thinking, I should have finished this when I was on the top, top of the tower with him. But the group that Gideon sent ends up meeting another group of people that had fled with King Noah and then eventually abandoned him. So here we start to see there's actually three little subgroups. It's kind of tough to, to wrap our brains around it, but let's see if we can walk through it. In verse 18, you see a group with people like Limhi and Gideon in it that stayed with their families. From 19 to 24, you see this second group of people who returned to their families after, after having killed King Noah. You see, in 19, they decided, what have we done? We need to go back and preserve and protect our wives and children. Meanwhile, the king in verse 20 commands them not to, and in their anger, they caused that he would suffer even death by fire, exactly as prophesied by Abinadi. They were going to do the same with the priests. Now we start to see a third group split off. But that third group flees before them, and that group of repentant souls go back to see what they can find of their families. They get the good news that the families have been spared, thanks to the courage of the women, and so they return to be with them. But again, think about these three different groups. A group that stayed with their family from the beginning, 
a group that unfortunately began to abandon them, but then turned in their tracks and came back to help. And then thirdly, a group that left and never looked back. King Noah's wicked priests. Probably not surprising, based on what we learned about them back in chapter 11, about so many wives and concubines and whoredoms and immoralities. The rest of the chapter describes Limhi's people stuck under the Lamanite thumb, paying a 50% tax, remaining under guard lest they escape, but at least enjoying some period of peace. That peace doesn't last long, however. Chapter 20 describes Limhi's group being attacked by the Lamanites. You see in verses 1 through 5, those wicked priests of Noah, never quite cured of their life of abominations, of whoredoms, end up missing not necessarily their families, but the lifestyle they'd been leading before. So they lie in wait to watch the Lamanite daughters come together to sing and dance and make themselves merry. Verse 3, they're ashamed to return to the city of Nephi, partly because they fear that the people will slay them. Remember, that's what had happened right at the death of King Noah. That group that ends up going back to their family was going to kill the rest of the priests as well. So out of their shame, out of their fear, out of their self-preservation, they durst not return to their wives and their children. Instead, most likely motivated by lust instead of love. They lay in watch for these Lamanite daughters. Verse 5, come out of their secret places, take them, carry them into the wilderness. 24 of these Lamanite daughters. I remember a story. My son was fairly young and he had made some cookies or something and he didn't want to share. He'd put in all the work to make them, right? It felt just of him to be able to hold on to the fruits of his labors. One of his older siblings said, you can't hoard all these cookies to yourself. And without recognizing the word choice that he was making, he turned and snapped back, I deserve my whoredoms. You'd been hoarding, he deserved his whoredoms. We died laughing, knowing that that's already its own word that has nothing to do with hoarding cookies. We still sometimes make fun of that sweet son, asking him if he deserves any whoredoms. This particular group of priests never got over their whoredoms, and so went in search of new conquests in these Lamanite daughters. Obviously, that doesn't go over well back at home, and so when the Lamanites find them missing in verse 6, they're angry, assume it's King Limhi's people, and prepare for war to avenge the loss of their daughters. King Limhi sees them coming from his tower, verse 8, his use of the tower, for a much better end than that of his father. So he gathers his people and lays wait in the fields and forests to defend them. Now here's the irony. In verse 9 through 11, this battle rages. At one point it's described as fighting like lions. Elsewhere it's described as fighting like dragons. But the irony is that both sides, Limhi and his people and the Lamanites, are both fighting over family to protect wives and children. If there's one thing that we need to give Lamanites credit for, it's the love they had for family. That was something that Jacob commented on way back in Jacob chapter 3. And that was part of the righteous tradition of their fathers that was passed down through the generations. Well, those of King Limhi that are fighting for their wives and children eventually win. And among the wounded Lamanites is their king. 
In 13, they bind up his wounds, bring him to Limhi so that he can question him, which he does in verse 14. Why are you attacking us? We have not broken our oath to you. Why would you break your oath to us? And the king explains, you carried away the daughters of my people. In my anger, I caused my people to come up to war against thy people. It's interesting what lapses of judgment we're guilty of when we're functioning under anger. We jump to conclusions. We leap into the heat of battle because of the heat of our anger without coming to calmly understand what's really going on. Well, Limhi is a little bit guilty of jumping to conclusions as well. He tends to, he ends up agreeing with the king of the Lamanites, assuming, well, you must be right. Maybe our people did this. But Gideon, a little cooler head, in verse 17 says to the king, to King Limhi, I pray thee forbear, do not search this people, lay not this thing to their charge. Please do not embarrass them by this assumption. Can you give your own people the benefit of the doubt here? Are there any more likely candidates for this outrage? Verse 18, don't you remember the priests of your father? They're out there somewhere. They don't care about their own families at all. Isn't it more likely they than us? Now, there's an interesting principle here. In a way, what King Limhi does is noble. Isn't he asking the question that the apostles ask at the Last Supper? When Jesus says that one of you will betray me tonight, they say, Lord, is it I? They automatically assume that the guilt lies within themselves. Could I possibly be the one that would do this? If we see what Limhi is doing, that seems to be kind of the equivalent of Lord, is it I? And yet it's Gideon that gives us the other side of that coin. Because sometimes it isn't I. At least not fully. I learned this through a moment of inspiration as someone that I care about was going through a difficult divorce. And he blamed himself entirely. This was a good, humble man who, knowing that story well from the New Testament, seemed to be living it through his own broken marriage. It's my fault. And yet seeing how depressed, how dejected, how self-deprecating he was through all of it, he really did feel 100% responsible for it. And while he had made mistakes, he wasn't alone in that. And as I was talking with him, it dawned on me, we always quote that account from the Last Supper, Lord, is it I? But that's not the only account of those events. According to one of the other accounts, that's the one we always go with because it's more noble, it's more altruistic. But there is another account that we seem to sweep under the rug, where instead of asking, Lord, is it I? The apostles kind of look around and whisper to the Lord, well, who is it? Like, Judas is looking a little shifty. It's probably him, right? I, we never talk about that one, but it's there in the New Testament, just like the more noble Lord is it I version. Which one is accurate? Probably both. And I think both need to be there. In the instance of this friend, it just seemed like the only asking Lord is it I was so self-destructive and hopeless and frankly unfair that I was grateful to realize that there is truth within both of those statements. Lord, is it I? Yes. Should I worry about my people? Could they possibly have done this? Perhaps. 
but is it only I? Do I deserve some blame? Yes. Do I deserve all the blame? No. So combining Limhi with Gideon here, I think, teaches us an important lesson. In this particular case, historically, Limhi was wrong and Gideon was right. It wasn't I. It was them. And once pacified, the king of the Lamanites was able to pacify his own people so that the battle between them, unnecessary as it was, would not continue. By the way, Gideon had his own Lord is it I experience in verse 21 when he admits to the king, are not the words of Abinadi fulfilled, which he prophesied against us and all this because we would not hearken unto the words of the Lord and turn from our iniquities? Beautifully humble personal pronouns. We wouldn't listen. Those are our iniquities and we're being punished for them. But we didn't deserve to be punished for these particular iniquities because they do not belong to us. That's an important thing to be able to grapple with. Which of these iniquities belong to me and which do not? Own the first. Don't own the second. In chapter 21, it's almost like we're going back to the beginning of the story. Remember how it all began in Mosiah chapter 7? where Ammon found King Limhi, and then we get this flashback in 9 and 10 to Zenith, and then we move forward in 11 through 17 with Noah. Well, now we've kind of caught back up, okay? We, had, we started there, we flashed back, we're now back up. And in chapter 21, Limhi is there. The Lamanites are stirred up to anger in verse 2. Again, that's never fully going to change as long as you're still in enemy territory. There might be brief periods of peace or even long periods of peace but they're temporary. You're still living under the Lamanite thumb. Now these Lamanites in verse 3 durst not slay them because their king had made a promise, an oath. But they were willing to get as close to the line as they possibly could, smiting them on the cheeks, exercising authority over them, putting heavy burdens upon their backs, driving them as they would a dumb ass. Sounds a lot like some of the prophecies of Abinadi, if they repented not of their sins. Sure enough, verse 4, all this was done that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. But verse 5, the people realize, Limhi's people, that there is no way they can deliver themselves out of the Lamanite hands. They're surrounded on every side. That is an important realization to make. Try as I might, do everything under my power. I cannot deliver myself. Because usually it's only getting to the end of our rope that we realize who it is that's been holding the rope all along. When I've exhausted all my options, I realize that the only option from the beginning really was Jesus. And so they finally begin turning to him with full purpose of heart. Not quite yet, of course. They're going to have to prove to themselves first that the arm of flesh is insufficient in this circumstance. In verse 6, they afflict the king sorely with their complaints. They just want to go fight the Lamanites and free themselves. We can do this ourselves in our own way. And so he lets them, but they lose. In fact, in verses 6 through 12, there are three failed attempts to deliver themselves through warfare. Three attempts at trusting in the arm of flesh until they finally realize the hard way that the flesh was never sufficient to begin with. So finally, in verse 13, they humbled themselves to the dust. Thinking that they can beat their enemy is probably going to require an element of pride. Recognizing that they can't, 
The pride is sucked out of them, and all they're left with is the humility to recognize that the arm of God is the only hope they have. Their humility in 13 leads them to subject themselves and submit themselves. Interesting order. Humble yourself, subject yourself, submit yourself. Now, in that case, they're subjecting and submitting themselves to their Lamanite captors. But I think there's a beautiful lesson in those verbs as we humble ourselves before God, subject ourselves to His will, submit ourselves to His will, and fully trust in Him. They seem to be starting to do that at the end of 14, as all the day long they cry unto their God that He would deliver them. You see, back in verse 10, they were crying mightily over the casualties of war. In 14, they are now crying mightily for the deliverance that they now know will only come from God. But with a certain amount of poetic justice in verse 15, the Lord is slow to hear their cry. After all, they were slow to remember the Lord their God. But in spite of his slowness, he did hear their cries. That's such an important detail. He does not forget them, though they had forgotten him. He's just tailoring his timing to have the greatest long-term effect. He begins to soften the hearts of the Lamanites. They begin to ease their burdens. Yet, the Lord did not see fit to deliver them out of bondage. Again, back to James. Let patience have her perfect work. There's still some working on the hearts of Limhi's people that they're going to need to go through. Verse 16, they begin to prosper by degrees. There's so much gradualness in these last two verses. And perhaps the learning curve was exactly what they needed. In 17, they begin to impart of their substance to the widows and the children. In 18, they stay together as a body as much as they can. You see how the Lord is trying to help them get over their selfishness or self-centeredness, which ran so deep in the reign of King Noah? Even these people that for a time were willing to abandon wives and children, only later to come to their senses and return? I wonder if this is some of the redemptive turbulence, that's Elder Maxwell's phrase, that they're going through right now as, as they're only beginning to be eased from their burdens, only beginning to have softened hearts from their captors, only beginning to prosper by degrees. You need all of this time to change your heart. Because you didn't choose to change it earlier. Choosing to be humble seems to result in deliverance so much faster than being compelled to be humble. Though that can result in deliverance as well. It will for them. But they're learning along the way. We have to care for each other. We have to be one. Remember, that's what Alma was teaching. But he did it at the very beginning. One heart, one mind. Hearts knit together in unity and love. Again, a beautiful juxtaposition between these two groups. And Alma figuring it out early, choosing. Limhi's people figuring it out late, being compelled. But eventually getting to that same point of unity and love. Even the king himself won't go out alone. And it's then that he's out with his guards that Ammon comes in. Which is what we saw way back in chapter 7. Now, unfortunately for Ammon... King Limhi thought that he was one, he assumed, wrongly, again, that this must be one of King Noah's old priests. So he captures him and is going to slay him when he finds, as we already discovered in an earlier chapter, wait, 
You've been looking for us. I've been looking for you. You're from Zarahemla. You're exactly the person that we need to help us escape from enemy territory once and for all. So much of the rest of chapter 21, we already know from what we saw back in chapter 7 and 8. But there is one detail that's added here that I don't think we quite saw so clearly back in the earlier account. He reiterates what we saw earlier, that they went in search of the land of Zarahemla, right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that these people in bondage to their sins, to their sorrows, to themselves, often are trying to find their way back. Often less actives have driven up to church wanting to cross the threshold, but then turn away in fear or shame. Remember when they went and they discovered these this record, these 24 golden plates that had the record of the people, and Limhi was so interested. That's why he's asking Ammon, do you know of anybody who can translate? Remember this? And Ammon explains what it means to have a seer. Limhi's big concern was, what was the cause of these people's destruction? Because we're facing it ourselves right here. But here's the detail that it seems to be added here that I, at least I didn't notice before. Middle of verse 26 having supposed it to be the land of Zarahemla, they returned to the land of Nephi. I don't remember that from the previous account. That when they found this destroyed land, ruins of buildings, covered with bones of slain people, they assumed it was Zarahemla. So no wonder they turned tail and came back dejected to the land of Nephi. Imagine the report they would have given their king. I think we found it, but it's gone. We wanted to come back to the faith. We couldn't find it. And now there's really no hope for us. I think that's the biggest change here. When now all hope seems to be lost. Because there's no Zarahemla left. There's no one that's going to be able to come to rescue us. And there's really no place for us to be rescued to anyway. There's truly nothing left for us. Again, your only hope is God. Now, God in his mercy, there's still a Zarahemla. In fact, someone from Zarahemla is coming to get you any day now. End of verse 26. Not many days before the coming of Ammon. They sat in their hopelessness for not very long before God showed them that hope was not lost after all. But that hope had have to come in him. The emotions of Limhi and Ammon at this moment are just beautiful. Verse 28, Limhi is filled with joy knowing that this seer, King Mosiah, was going to be able to translate their records. Meanwhile, 29, Ammon and his brethren are filled with sorrow now notice the cause of their sorrow. We'll see a little bit more of this next week when we get to Mosiah 25, which is a masterpiece. I hope you'll tune in. But in 29, Ammon and his brethren are filled with sorrow because so many of their brethren had been slain. Their brethren, didn't know any of them, right? Three generations removed. But these are fellow Nephites. These are our brethren. What a tragedy with what they've endured. In verse 30, they were also sorrowful and mourned the death of Abinadi another prophet that they never knew personally, but a man of God that had sealed his testimony with his blood. They were also sorrowful, end of verse 30, for the departure of Alma and the people that went with him who had formed a church. Oh, where could they be 
If only we could find them and bring them home with us. If only we could be with them. But there's one source of sorrow in verse 30 that fascinates me more than the others. The others seem, oh, somewhat natural, if you have any level of empathy. Understanding what other people have gone through, especially on the level of death, whether it's people from Limhi or Abinadi himself. But at the beginning of 30, notice this source of sorrow for Ammon and his brethren that King Noah and his priests had caused the people to commit so many sins and iniquities against God. And that tore them up. Now there's something here that I think is really important for us to understand. Do we sorrow over other people's sins, even when it doesn't affect us at all? And maybe hasn't affected them to the same degree as like death would that they're noticing so clearly? The reason that I wonder is that Sometimes you hear stories of people that were in enemy territory for however long and eventually found their way back to the, to the church or to the truth, eventually received deliverance. And sometimes when we hear the kind of life that they lived before they came back, there's almost this twisted kind of jealousy like, man, you got to have fun and do all those worldly things all those years before you got the restrictions of a life of discipleship. Maybe it's not that stark, but sometimes I hear it or sense it when an old person joins the church, for example. You know, some octogenarian gets baptized and you're like, man, baptized in your 80s? What a great time to join the church. You got to live your life with no standards. And now it's all washed away and you're clean. Man, you got to eat your cake and have it too. Do we not see what's wrong with that? Because if we ever feel that way, then we don't really believe Alma's later words that wickedness never was happiness. We're kind of admitting, wow, all that wickedness sounds pretty cool, pretty fun, pretty appealing. I mean, I know I'm not supposed to want it, and so that's why I'll control myself. And yeah, you shouldn't have done that because you're going to get busted for it but at least now you're free and clear. It's been forgiven you. But man, best of both worlds. No. Do we not believe that wickedness never was, never was happiness? We shouldn't be jealous of crimson sin that is now white as wool because wickedness is misery, even when not fully recognized. And so Ammon and his brethren mourn I can't believe that King Noah caused you to commit so many sins and iniquities. I'm sorry your life has been so hard. Even when you were being told to eat, drink, and be merry. Even when the beliefs were squished down to fall in lines with the behavior. And so there was no guilt gap. You didn't even know what you were doing wrong. Talk about sinning and ignorance. And yet something inside us seems to know. Alma did. He recognized it. It's what spurred his own repentance. Do we sorrow over wickedness, even when it's committed ignorantly, knowing that some level of internal damage is being done, even when those sins will eventually be washed away through the redemption of Christ? Do we know that sin is sorrow and that wickedness never was happiness? I hope so. Now, from 31 to 36, the end of this chapter, 
there is such a beautiful desire on the part of Limhi's people. Now that he knows there is hope, there is a Zarahemla for us to go to. There are people from Zarahemla that are now back to help deliver us. Best of all, God is willing to help deliver us since we are completely unable to deliver ourselves. In verse 31, this beautiful admission, the people of Limhi were, would have gladly joined with them, the people of Alma, for they themselves had entered into a covenant with God to serve him and keep his commandments. It's the same covenant that King Benjamin's people made in chapter 4 and 5. It's the same covenant that Alma's people made in chapter 18. Now Limhi's people desire to make the same covenant themselves. They would have gladly joined with them. Why didn't we sneak off to the waters of Mormon earlier? We could have found truth and freedom from sin and sorrow, deliverance from bondage so much earlier if we hadn't been slow to remember the Lord our God. They're recognizing what they've missed. In 32, King Limhi had entered into a covenant with God also many of his people, to serve him, to keep his commandments. 33, they were desirous to be baptized, but none in the land had the authority from God. That authority seemed to be confined to the priests, the wicked ones of Noah, the righteous one being Alma, and Ammon himself, who seems to have had the authority of God, still felt and feared he lacked its power, the kind that Alma had prayed for before baptizing Helam. And so considering himself an unworthy servant, he declined to do this thing. So, verse 34, they'd have to wait a while before they could form themselves into a church. They have to wait on the Spirit. Now they were desirous to become even as Alma and his brethren who had fled. That second time in, in a few short verses, I wish we had joined them earlier. In 35, they have the same desire that Alma saw in his followers, a desire to be baptized as a witness and a testimony that they were willing to serve God with all their hearts. And from that time forward, verse 36, I love this phrase. Now, all the study of Ammon and his people and King Limhi and his people was to deliver themselves out of the hands of the Lamanites and from bondage. How badly, how desperately are we seeking deliverance? Are we willing to make it all our study? The one thing on our mind, the thing we want most, is it our greatest desire? And is the Lord our only and final hope? Then study it. You want to escape from the bondage of sin? Then study repentance. You want freedom from doubt or despair? Then make it all your study to come unto Christ and learn of his atonement as priceless a commodity as freedom, especially of the spiritual kind, typically will not come at less than that kind of cost. I remember as a freshman in college, I just finished studying the Book of Mormon again from start to finish, and I wanted to try something new that one of my teachers was teaching me about, topical scripture study, instead of just sequential scripture study where all the pages turn in one direction. I wondered, what should I study? What subject is on my mind? Now, by then, I'd just received my mission call, and I felt a lot of opposition from the adversary, as so many soon-to-be missionaries do. And so, I wrote Satan at the top of a page in my little spiral notebook, and I started making him all my study. 
I was still playing football at the time, and we'd watch a ton of game film. I was just a tackling dummy. Redshirt freshman, when we played UCLA, we would learn UCLA's plays and use them against the first team defense. When we played Notre Dame, we'd watch Notre Dame film, learn Notre Dame's plays, and then play them against the first team defense. I'd come to see the value of watching the enemy. And so with the enemy of all righteousness, I made it all my study to try to figure out what are his tactics? What's his strategy? What do the scriptures teach? It was almost my own version of the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. What are the strategies of sin? And how can we overcome them? I think I ended up with something along the lines of 50 single-spaced handwritten notes in that spiral notebook. All about the adversary. The different names that he went by, the different things he'd tried in the past, ways that people had overcome him. His attempts in pre-mortality, the temptations of Jesus, I was running throughout the standard works. And it opened my eyes as a college freshman to just how much truth is in these chapters, anywhere in the standard works, and how much truth can be forthcoming when we make something all our study. Pick whichever topic you seem to be struggling with, or pray for the Lord's guidance to know what subject should focus your study. And then make it all your study. Deliverance can be your reward. So it was for them. In chapter 22, we see the end of stage three, this ascent to atonement. We watch the, the culmination of the third generation in Hansen's Law. We see Limhi's group finally make it back to Zarahemla, escape from enemy territory. In verse 1, he consults with his people. That's good of a king. He gathers them together that he might get the voice of the people concerning the matter. They realize that the only hope they have is to take their women and children. Fighting's not going to do it. Again, there's no amount of trusting in their own arm of flesh that's going to deliver them from the the Lamanites. They're going to have to flee. In the fight, flight, or freeze, flight was their only option. And they'd have to bring everyone and everything that they could to make their journey. Now, in verse 3 and 4, good old Gideon has an idea. But the way he presents it, I think, is very beautiful, especially when it comes to someone who doesn't have the authority to execute the plan, but does have the great ideas to be able to suggest one. I'm looking at you, members of a ward council. You may not be the presiding authority to say, yes, this is how we're going to implement it. But if you don't speak up, then so often the best idea is not being brought to the fore. It's that principle of scattered revelation, where God takes his answers and breaks it up into smaller pieces and gives all kinds of council members parts of the puzzle. Or another way to look at it is from section 81 of the Doctrine and Covenants, given to a counselor in the First Presidency, who's told two interesting pieces of counsel himself. One, be faithful in counsel. In other words, give your best advice, share your best ideas, even when you're not the one in charge. And secondly, stand in the office to which you've been called. In other words, know that you're a counselor, so counsel. But know that you're just a counselor, so don't force your will upon the entire group. I think that's a beautiful balance that we all need to strike in our leadership, in our counseling roles, both to lift where we stand and to stand where we stand, instead of in a leader's shoes to which we haven't been called. The way Gideon does it in verse 3 and 4, 
He says to the king very humbly, Now, O king, thou hast hitherto hearkened unto my words many times when we have been contending with our brethren, the Lamanites. And now, O king, if thou hast not found me to be an unprofitable servant. I wonder if Gideon learned that phrase from Ammon. Remember earlier it said that Ammon had rehearsed unto these people all the words of King Benjamin that they'd missed since they were gone? Well, I wonder if that phrase had stuck out to Gideon. If you haven't found me, king, to be an unprofitable servant, if thou hast hitherto listened to my words in any degree, and if they've been of service to thee, then please listen to my words now, and I'll be thy servant and deliver this people out of bondage. I love that. It's like I've established a certain track record. I've given you the best that I know how. And if any of it has been helpful, would you give me another chance to suggest some advice that might also prove valuable? There's no assumption of, I was right in the past, even when you were wrong. Remember when you jumped to conclusions and thought it was us when I knew it was them? There's none of that. There's just this very humble, if I've ever been good for you, can I continue to serve? It's an interesting thing trying to lead from behind a little bit. But that's what Gideon is trying to do here. The king allows him to speak. And so Gideon says in verse 6, the back pass, the back wall, the back side of the city, the Lamanites or their guards are drunken at night. And if we gather our people, I'm sure we can make it out through that secret pass while they're drunken and asleep. And we'll flee. We'll have our women, our children, our flocks, our herds. We'll, we'll travel out and make it back to Zarahemla. We'll notice in verse 10, King Limhi caused that his people should do exactly that. You see, back when Gideon was explaining the plan, he says at the end of verse 4, I will be thy servant and will deliver this people out of bondage. I'll do it. And yet King Limhi realizes, I am in charge of this people still. Your plan is the best one, better than anything I would have thought of. But I do have a role to make sure that it is executed. And so I will use my authority to implement your plan. It's a perfect combination. If we can get that to happen in bishopric meetings and ward council meetings and family council meetings, then better things will get done, as was the case here. By the end of the chapter, that plan is successful. King Limhi delivers the last tribute of wine, and those Lamanite guards sleep like babies, as the babies and children and wives and families of King Limhi escape from right out from under their noses. In verse 13, they join Mosiah's people and become his subjects. Sounds like King Limhi very easily passed over the reins to Mosiah. And meanwhile, Mosiah in 14 receives them with joy as well and receives their records with probably even more joy. Sounds a lot like Lehi. Remember when his sons come back with the brass plates and mom is thrilled and dad is like, yeah, good to see you guys. Do you have the scriptures? And he searches them from the beginning and finds them to be of great worth. Mosiah is cut from the same cloth. Meanwhile, 15 and 16, the Lamanites find out that they've been duped. They send an army in hot pursuit. But after two days, they lose the trail. The tracks have faded. And now they're lost in the wilderness. Some poetic justice there too. Now, 23 and 24, our last two chapters, we go from that other group, Limhi's, that makes it back. And we pick up where we left off with Alma's group. We met them back in chapter 18. 
Now we're picking them up again in 23 and 24. 19 through 22 in the middle was for Limhi and his group. And again, if we're trying to study this juxtaposition of escape and people that turn to the Lord early versus people who turn to the Lord late, people that choose to be humble versus people that are compelled to be humble, eventually they get back to the same destination. But one group's journey is much more pleasant than the others. In 23 verse 1, Alma is warned of the Lord that King Noah's armies are after them. And so they flee. Remember with Limhi's people, he had to be on the lookout and watch. Well, here the Lord is Alma's lookout. That's one difference to begin with. Secondly, verse 2, the Lord strengthens Alma's people so that the people of Noah cannot overtake them to destroy them. Slow to hear the cries of Limhi's people, quick and proactive to preserve the people of Alma. In verse 3, they flee eight days' journey into the wilderness, a great symbolic number. Eight, baptism, meaning a new beginning. The eighth day is just a second first day, a new creation. We're beginning again as they were in this place of pure water in verse 4. Sounds a lot like what they just left in the waters of Mormon. In verse 5, they begin to settle there. They're industrious. They labor exceedingly. And in 6, they want Alma to be their king. They love him. But he says to them in 7, Ye shall not esteem one flesh above another. No man should think himself above another. I learned that the hard way. When I thought myself and the other priests of Noah were so much superior, our seats were even higher than what anyone else could do. We could lean on this banister of gold while we lied to you all. Now, verse 8, admittedly, if every king is righteous, it's a great way to govern a people. So much faster than democracy. It's just so unlikely that you can always have righteous men to be your kings. Remember Joseph Smith warned about that in section 121? That it's the nature and disposition of almost, thankfully not all, but almost all men, as soon as they get a little authority, as they suppose, to begin exercising unrighteous dominion. That's why any... Mortal monarchy is a danger until the king of kings comes. Then we'll have the ultimate just man to be our king. Verse 9, remember the iniquity of King Noah and his priests. I myself was caught in a snare. Interesting word choice. I was tricked. I was trapped. I did many things which were abominable in the sight of the Lord. Beautiful admission, humble confession, which caused me sore repentance. Remember I mentioned that back in chapter 18? He talked about his repentance. Notice it wasn't just leaving his iniquitous life. It was starting a righteous one. It's not just getting out of the environment. It's changing the identity. There was repentance that Alma went through. I wish I knew all the details of it. But he does admit that it was sore. Even after you've stopped sinning, there is still sore repentance that takes place to scour the soul. In verse 10, you sense that. Much tribulation, but the Lord heard my cries. He answered my prayers. He made me an instrument in his hands in bringing so many of you to a knowledge of his truth. Remember King Benjamin's people's words? We have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. Here, Alma is describing both halves of that whole for himself. Sore repentance from the abominable things that I did before. But not only had that disposition to do evil changed, 
but I had a disposition to do good. I became an instrument in God's hands. Verse 11, I don't say this to glory. I'm unworthy of that. I just say it to give you this caution that no mere mortal is completely free of snares and their dangerous potential. We've been in bondage to Noah, oppressed by him and his priests, brought into iniquity by them, bound with the bands of iniquity. Verse 13, but now we've been delivered by the power of God out of these bonds. So stand fast in this liberty wherewith ye have been made free. Trust no man to be a king over you. Don't you get that sense from the people of Limhi? They kept trusting in Limhi, deliver us, lead us to battle. And finally, he and they finally realized the only king we can trust is Christ. Only he can give us liberty, make us free. 14, Alma continues, Trust no one to be your teacher nor your minister, except he be a man of God. I find it so painfully ironic that often people who fight against the church find it impossible to trust prophets. But instead, who do they put their trust in? so sad that they're willing to abandon their belief in prophets or their obedience to God's will through them and putting their trust in someone attacking the church who has not proven that they are walking in God's ways or keeping his commandments. Alma did walk in God's ways. He did keep God's commandments. But knowing his own fallibility, he was concerned about kingship. What he preferred, and we'll see this in multiple generations subsequently, was prophethood not political power, but spiritual influence. He seems to be suggesting that in verse 15, just love each other. Then there's no contention and probably no need for some kind of kingly authority. Just love each other. Can you imagine if that were our political party? If that were our form of government? Therefore, in 17, he consecrates priests and teachers, limiting that function to just men who then receive authority to preach and teach. 18, they watch over their people. Great verb. They nourish them with things pertaining to righteousness. And thus they prosper. 21 starts with a difficult word though. Nevertheless. So in spite of all this prosperity, spiritual and temporal, nevertheless the Lord seeth fit to chasten his people. Yea, he trieth their patience and their faith. And he would for them. Thankfully, however, just as 21 started with a nevertheless, so does 22. We're kind of going back and forth, almost like bumper bowling, heading in this direction. Hey, God's blessing us. Oh, we've got to be careful about prosperity, though. We'll hit the pride cycle. Oh, wait, but God still is a part of things and wants to help us. So nevertheless, in spite of our patience and faith being tried, whosoever putteth his trust in God, the same shall be lifted up at the last day. In fact, they're often lifted up much earlier than that. 23, they learned the same lesson that Limhi's people were learning, that none could deliver them but the Lord their God. 24, but he did deliver them and showed forth his mighty power unto them and great were their rejoicings. Now 25, all of this is taking place in the land of Helam. It's interesting. Finally build a real city in a land that they're planning on staying. They call it Helam. Interesting they didn't call that one Alma. I, again, I wonder who this Helam guy was. He was the first one Alma baptized, right? I wonder if he's the leader of this group of 204, 450, that seeks out Alma 
Alma knew more than they did. He'd been there to hear all of this message from Abinadi. He was the priest, having authority to do certain things. But I wonder if Helam really was the leader of this group, pointing them, almost a John the Baptist, pointing the people forward. Anyway, they named the city and the land after him. They gather together because the Lamanite army is after them. And in 27, Alma calms their fears, tells them not to be frightened, and exhorts them to remember the Lord their God and that God would deliver them. And that's all they needed. Verse 28, they hushed their fears. They cried unto the Lord. And notice what they asked for. This was a pretty humble petition. They didn't ask for deliverance. They simply asked that God would soften the hearts of the Lamanites to spare them and their wives and their children. Compare that to Limhi's group, to King Noah and his priests fleeing. The role of wives and children in these chapters is fascinating. And sure enough, 29, the Lord did soften the hearts of the Lamanites. Alma then surrenders, delivers themselves up, and submits to the authority of those that the king of the Lamanites place over them. Unfortunately, guess who he placed over them? The wicked priests of King Noah. There's so many interesting connections and plot twists here. You remember when the army of the Lamanites went out in pursuit of Limhi and then lost their tracks and then were lost? Well, they ended up not finding Limhi's group, but they did find King Noah's priests and that group, led by a wicked priest named Amulon. His name appears in verse 31. And for some reason, they allow Amulon to be the leader, kind of the puppet leader, uh, over the people of Alma. You see, when the Lamanite army first met Amulon and the others, this group that had stolen away 24 daughters of the Lamanites, it was those Lamanite daughters that pled for their husbands. It does sound like some amount of time has passed. This doesn't seem like stolen one day, married the next, and now they're pleading for their captors the, the, the day after. We don't know all the details here historically, but those Lamanite abducted wives plead for their husbands and verse 34, the Lamanites have compassion on them and they don't destroy them because of their wives. Again, one more example of Lamanites honoring family, even when in this case, the family wasn't created very correctly. 36 through 39, then the chapter ends with the king of the Lamanites letting Amulon take control over the people of Alma. Granted, of course, as it says at the end of the chapter, that they don't do anything contrary to will to the will of the Lamanite king. No wonder Amulon seems to keep Alma under his thumb in the next chapter, probably feeling like he was under the Lamanite king's thumb himself all along. But there we see in chapter 24, this final chapter of this section, where Alma and his people finally make their escape. Verse 1, Amulon is in charge. He appoints teachers over all the people. This is fascinating. The king of the Lamanites must see something in Amulon, at least some degree of intelligence, wickedness, of course, but intelligence to be able to appoint teachers over his own people. So it's not just that Amulon is governing the people of Alma, but he's also teaching all the Lamanites themselves. In verse 4, he appointed teachers of the brethren of Amulon in every land which was possessed by his people. And thus the language of Nephi began to be taught among all the people of the Lamanites. Now in 5, they become friendly as a result. There's communication between them. 
Granted, Amulon doesn't teach anything spiritual, which I find fascinating. He doesn't teach them anything concerning the Lord their God. Well, he hadn't done that back in, with King Noah either. But neither the law of Moses, and definitely not the words of Abinadi. But it's that middle one. The same priests that had kept saying to Abinadi, oh, we keep the law of Moses. We teach the law of Moses because salvation comes through the law of Moses. What a crock. They didn't believe any of that stuff. And as soon as they were removed from that environment, there goes the law of Moses. We didn't really put much stock into it anyway. You see how flimsy a hold we have on the ceremonial law when we're not holding on to the moral law at all? It's then that the ceremonial law is so easily jettisoned when it's no longer enforced because it wasn't doing anything for us anyway. But notice this detail that I find fascinating. Almost said in passing that these people of Amulon, these former priests, are teaching Nephite language to the Lamanites. Well, who cares? I have a feeling that Ammon will, that the other sons of Mosiah will. And I just wonder how much of their success a generation later comes because God was willing to use even the wicked to move forward his purposes. That God was able to pull beauty out of these ashes. To take something hard that Alma and his people were going through. Being under Amulon's thumb. But using that to spread the Nephite language. So that by the time a set of Nephite missionaries was coming forth among the Lamanites. There was no language barrier to stop their success. It's beautiful to me. How God is able to bring good things out of bad situations. Even find righteousness when wickedness is what is being planted. It's like the church growing in Japan in the aftermath of World War II. Or in Korea on the heels of the Korean War. Or in Southeast Asia after Vietnam. And God taking these horrible acts of world violence and opening doors and hearts as LDS servicemen begin teaching the gospel to the people that they used to be fighting against. That's beautiful to me. In six, I forgot one other thing. They do teach them also to keep a record. Now, I kind of laugh at that. It sounds a lot like what we saw back in the book of Omni when things kind of bottom out in the book of Mormon. Like, I don't care about the things of God so much, and I'm a wicked person, but at least I'm keeping a record. And ah, the fullness of my intent is no longer to bring people to the God of Abraham, but at least I'm keeping a genealogy. Again, these wicked priests of Noah don't know much, but at least we're supposed to keep a record. As a result of their Nephite education, if we can call it that, notice what comes in verse 7. The Lamanites begin to increase in at least three things. As a, re as a result of their education, they increase in wealth, their riches. They increase in knowledge, in this case, the wisdom of the world. And they increase in wickedness, all manner of wickedness and plunder. What a tragedy that that is often the result of our education too. The glory of God is intelligence, as long as that intelligence consists of light and truth. The proud who are rich and the proud who are learned are the ones that President Benson warned have the hardest time following the counsel of God. To be learned is good, Jacob said if they hearken to the counsels of God. But oh, the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men, he also warns. 
when they are learned, they think they are wise and they set it not the counsels of God, thinking they know of themselves. Well, again, this increase of education, I love education. Seems like I'm a, an eternal, per, permanent, professional student. I love to learn. But it's not in the pursuit of riches or the wisdom of the world and certainly not to the end of wickedness. Can we purify our educational motives as well? Well, in verse 8, Amulon and his priests exercise authority over Alma and his brethren. They persecute them. These were former colleagues, okay? They're in the court of Noah. Amulon's kids start persecuting Alma's kids. That's when you know things are bad. That's reminiscent of the eternal hatred that the Lamanites passed on from parent to child. But again, like I said, verse 9, they knew each other. You're the one that believed. It probably started causing all of these problems. He was wroth with him and probably wroth about his own situation too because he was subject to, the, to King Laman. I'm getting bullied by the Lamanites, so I'm going to bully you. Meanwhile, verse 10, Alma's people cry mightily to God. Amulon puts a stop to that immediately. Puts guards over them to watch them. Anyone found calling upon God will be put to death. Now, this sounds a lot like the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And yet, where Daniel felt inspired to pray vocally, windows open, out loud, he didn't change a thing. If anything, he became even more bold in his prayers. And yet, this group, equally inspired by God, is told to take the opposite approach. Do not raise your voice, Alma tells them in verse 12. But pour out your hearts to him. He knows. He'll recognize those groanings that cannot be uttered. He recognizes the thoughts of our hearts. And he responds to them. The voice of the Lord comes to them in their afflictions and says, Lift up your heads and be of good comfort. I know of the covenant which you've made with me. And I'll covenant with my people and deliver them out of bondage. You've been promising me. I'm part of this covenant. Allow me to make promises to you. I already have. Verse 14, I will ease the burdens which are put upon your shoulders, that you cannot feel them upon your backs. Remember with the people of Limhi, he began to ease their burdens. He began to prosper by degrees. Here, let me help you. Let me ease those burdens. I'm not going to remove them yet, but I'll make them so you can't even feel them on your backs. Notice why, verse 14. This will I do that ye may stand as witnesses for me hereafter, and that ye may know of a surety that I, the Lord God, do visit my people in their afflictions. I think that's one of the reasons that the burdens had to stay and simultaneously be lightened. If there was no burden, they might not know that God was there supporting them. But as long as a trial remains, and yet you find the strength to endure it, God is there, not just the burden. Remember way back in 1 Nephi when they're traveling through the wilderness and they're not allowed to cook their meat on open fire? Not allowed to have torches and fire lighting their way through the wilderness at night? Now there was a very pragmatic reason for that, I'm sure. We don't want the smoke to alert the people back in Jerusalem that we've just escaped. But there's also the promise that the Lord makes, I'll take care of the food. I'll make it so that it's sweet to you. Even raw meat. 
I'll be your light in the wilderness to show you the way. And then this beautiful phrase in 1 Nephi 17, verse 13. And ye shall know that it is by me that ye are led. I love that. You're going to know it's me because it's so hard that you know it can't be you. I'm going to make the burden just heavy enough that the arm of flesh will be insufficient to support it. But you'll support it, knowing as a result that my arm was right alongside yours. You see, I learned this the hard way on my mission. Over and over, unfortunately. The Lord kept teaching me that when I think I can do it on my own, He lets me try. I'm grateful I can't hear the laughter from heaven. But again, that concept, I think I can do it on my own. Okay, fine. Be my guest. I'll be here to pick up the pieces. That was Limai's group, right? Three times we can deliver ourselves. We'll fight these Lamanites. No. But once you come to me, I'll help you. And you'll know that it's me that's leading you. You'll know of a surety that I visit my people in their afflictions. In fact, isn't that what Gethsemane was? Christ's willingness to personally visit us in our afflictions, to share the burden, not just to wish it away with some kind of magical wand, to share in it. Maybe that's why we know the burden's there, but we can't seem to feel its full weight on our back because we're in the yoke with him who promised us a light burden. He visits us in our afflictions. Let me come and be here with you so that we can come to know God in our extremities. That's exactly what happened in 15. The burdens which were laid upon Alma and his brethren were made light. Yea, the Lord did strengthen them that they could bear up their burdens with ease. It's exactly what happened with Lehi's original group in chapter 17 of 1 Nephi. And they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. Sounds like the advice that Joseph Smith was giving the saints while he was languishing in Liberty Jail. To cheerfully do all things that lie in our power and then stand still with the utmost assurance to see the salvation of God and for his arm to be revealed. So powerful. It's exactly what happened for the saints. It's exactly what's happening for Alma's people. And so that's what they do. In 16, so great was their faith and their patience that the voice of the Lord came unto them again, saying, Be of good comfort, for on the morrow I will deliver you out of bondage. See, back in 13, it was, Be of good comfort, because I'll be here with you in your afflictions. I'll visit you in them. In 16, it's, Be of good comfort, because I'm going to get you out of them. You see, there's a deliverance in and a deliverance from our trials. And God is willing to be a part of both. Unfortunately, we typically are only open to one of the two options. We constantly pray for deliverance from. But often that only comes after our faith and patience during deliverance in is such that God knows that we've learned to trust in him, which perhaps is what that affliction was for all along. You understand the difference? I hope. Deliverance in our trials is what they enjoyed in verse 14 and 15. Deliverance from their trial is what they were promised in 16 
and would shortly thereafter receive. In fact, their escape, their final escape, is very similar to Limhi's. It's just much more divine. In Limhi's group, it was, let's make sure the guards are drunk. We'll administer to them the last portion of wine. Meanwhile, for Alma's group in verse 19, the Lord offers to do the same work himself. No alcohol involved. I'll cause a deep sleep to come upon them, and then you can escape, which they did. Verse 21, the people of Alma pour out their thanks to God in a little valley they happen to call Alma. He gets something named after him now. They pour out their gratitude because God had been merciful unto them. He had eased their burdens, that's deliverance in, and had delivered them out of bondage, that's deliverance from. Can we be equally grateful for both types of deliverance? And in either situation, end of verse 21, can we acknowledge that none can deliver us except it is the Lord our God? In 22, everyone gives thanks to God. Men, women, children. Anyone who can speak lifts their voice in praise of God. Children too young to understand what's going on, but old enough to speak, are taught by their parents to praise God for the deliverance he is giving them. And yet, humble as always, the Lord stops their praising to say in 23, Alma, get going, haste thee, get thou and this people out of the land. The Lamanites have awakened and they pursue thee. Now again, this is ironic. God is the one that caused the deep sleep to fall upon them. Couldn't he have just continued it? Of course. But instead, it's a matter of Alma, you've got to do your part too. If Limhi at the beginning was trust fully in the arm of flesh, we can't swing the pendulum so far that we don't do anything with our flesh at all. So in this case, it's, I'll do my part. Alma, you need to do yours as well. And so they do. And as they get going in 23, God then stops the Lamanites in that valley so they can pursue them no further. This is the more miraculous version of the Lamanites chasing down the people of Limhi and losing their tracks in the wilderness. Limhi's escape seems highly human. Alma's escape seems incredibly divine. And that seems to be in keeping with when do we turn to the Lord? How early, how quickly, versus how late? These chapters and this lesson then ends in verse 25. They've made it back to a place they've never been. Limhi and his people have made it back. Alma and his people have made it back. Ammon was part of Limhi's group that came and returned with them. And in verse 25 it ends... And King Mosiah did also receive them with joy. What a fitting end to an 18-chapter saga. From chapter 7 through chapter 24. Three generations, just like Hansen's Law suggests, of departing the faith, wallowing in one's fallen nature, and then clawing your way back with heaven's help to a place that Grandpa took for granted and chose to leave behind. I'm grateful for these stories because I'm in every one of them. There's times that I am firmly settled in Zarahemla 
tent facing the tower that the prophet is speaking from and me just rejoicing in their words. There's times I'm a little too overzealous. Other times I'm a little too austere. Times that I wander away wanting something that was never in my best interest. I hope I'm not King Noah very often. But there's times I'm blind of eye and hard of heart and almost try to wish away my beliefs in order not to feel any gap between behaviors. Thankfully, my jack-in-the-box pops back up almost automatically and trusting in the condescension of Christ to return. But I'm still in these chapters we've discussed today, torn at times between my limb-high side and my alma side. If will I choose to be humble or will I be compelled to be humble? Will I be quick to respond to God's commands or slow to remember Him? Will I rely too much on the arm of flesh? Or will I relent and repent and remember God and trust in His deliverance in, even as I wait and pray, patience and faith, for deliverance from? Either way, that's the destination. To come back to the King who I promise will receive us with joy. I look forward to that redemptive reunion, that return to the King, where I will finally be clasped in the arms of Jesus. I know that He will receive us with joy, no matter how long or hard the road of return happened to be. I testify of that. I pray that you have found personal application in these chapters far beyond the storyline of Scripture. There is yet more to come. Next week, chapter 25 has one of the most powerful examples of how we're supposed to approach Scripture that I've ever seen. And then meeting the next generation and to see wickedness and repentance and return all over again, since this is a lesson that, for better and worse, we tend to repeat within ourselves frequently. Thank you for being a part of this study. Thank you for spending time in the Book of Mormon. Did you make it this far? Did you stick with me? I hope that you did. And I hope that you'll come back for more next week. I'll see you then.